Welcome to the podcast of the week by the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the History of Emotions, Europe 1100 to 1800. Enjoy hearing how emotions make history. Adam Hembry is a PhD candidate in English at the University of Melbourne. He researches the discursive similarities between early modern writings on staged action and magic as passionate practices. His other research interests include the philosophy of language, etymology, monstrosity, and intersections between cognitive science and literature. Adam also produces and performs improvised theatre in Melbourne. This paper, Lexical Feeling, Language as Emotional Technology, was delivered at the Future of Emotions Conversations Without Borders at the University of Western Australia in June 2018. I'd like to start off by pointing out that um, my goal for this talk today is to put forward uh, a couple of fields or domains in the spirit of topology that seems to haunt this conference uh, that I think are useful. Uh, and not perfect, but useful. Uh, and in the spirit of interdisciplinarity, or indeed transdisciplinarity, uh, to think about uh, the foibles of those methodologies as opportunities, uh, as something that we can lean into and explore and play with. Uh, so this is based on research that is happening uh, parallel to the thesis uh, that Kurt uh, described. Um, and it's based on a premise uh, that I am only partially comfortable with. Uh, so let's be uncomfortable with that premise together. That premise is uh, that a word is a body. Um, and what I mean by that is that it is a physical, material thing, uh, which in my own sort of phenomenologically materialist way means to say it's a thing. Um, and one of the consequences, of the many consequences of that assumption, uh, is that we can think of words as emotional technologies which is to say, physical things that can be systematized or instrumentalized to function emotionally, uh, or perhaps to even be constitutive of emotions. Um, that is, by the way, a very open question by design. And in broad strokes, there are three components to uh, my talk today. Uh, the first is to look into uh, cognitive scientific and neuroscientific advances recently uh, in the field of concepts to think about experience as a conceptual phenomenon. Um, we'll move forward from that into a cognitive linguistics perspective, uh, a popular theory known as conceptual metaphor theory uh, that I find very compelling, uh, as well as uh, have a few, I think, productive quibbles with that I'd like for us to discuss together. Uh, and then finally, um, to sit in a place where I'm currently working, uh, which is to say, how do we work with words? What are they? What do they accomplish? Uh, and as bodies, which is that guiding uh, premise or assumption, uh, how do they move us? So I'm going to start with a parlor trick. Uh, apologies in advance. Um, some of you may already have some familiarity with this trick. No spoilers, please. Um, uh, this is a figure of mystery blobs. Uh, if you've never encountered it before, it may well have no significance to you. Uh, if you had to describe it to someone, you might say some... Uh, asymmetrical black markings on a white background. Um, and that's because you have no uh, formulated concept for this thing. Uh, I can fix that for you, though, uh, and give you something that will activate concepts in your sensory apparatus, uh, along with related concepts. Now, depending on what you associate with honeybees, uh, those may be a variety of things. Springtime, flowers, honey, 
or if, like me, you were swarmed at 14 by a nest full of wasps, uh, sheer terror. Um, you can activate those emotional concepts as well as those language concepts. And the next time you look at those mystery blobs, they will look different to you. That's because you're no longer experientially blind, as Lisa Feldman Barrett would say. And that's where this figure comes from, is her recent book, How Emotions Are Made, which I'm sure has been making the rounds amongst uh, the center circles here. In that neuroscientific perspective, concepts and words can be said to have a relationship, but it would help us conceptually to talk about concepts first uh, as modes of experience. And Lisa Feldman Barrett claims that your concepts are a primary tool for your brain to guess the meaning of incoming sensory inputs. For example, concepts give meaning to changes in sound pressure so that you hear them as words or music instead of random noise. All of this is to say that concepts are a way that scientists talk about experience. Um, and the verbs of what concepts do, I think, are still in negotiation. Concepts organize sensory experience. Uh, they also um, potentiate sensory experience. They permit it. They allow it to be distinguished from noise. Um, if you like to keep this computerized metaphor going, then the data is static until it can be shaped. And the only thing that can shape it is the thing that scientists call a concept. Now, concepts bear a relationship to words, and that relationship is still under discussion. Um, one of the perspectives, however, is that the relationship between them is not one of perfect identity, to say that words are concepts or that the word pair and the concept pair are identical. Um, that's not the concrete position of uh, any neuroscientist I've come across. Uh, it's much more blurry than that. Um, to put it in Barbara Malt and Philip Wolfe's words, uh, given the extent of documented diversity, it seems safe to project that there may be few or no domains of human experience in which the vocabulary words covering the domain map cleanly onto one another across languages. Any general characterization of the human cognitive architecture that assumes a straightforward and universal mapping from conceptual representations to word meanings, although realized in a different word forms, must be wrong. Now that is to say that the problem of translation is a cognitive problem, uh, but it doesn't just happen between languages. It's also something to consider about the supposed line between conceptual experience and language. Um, and those two things are, conceptually speaking, uh, still held in something of a Venn diagram in the minds of neuroscientists and even cognitive linguists. Um, but there are several important ways to think about them that I think are useful to us. One of them is as an indexical tool. Uh, and when I say indexical, I mean that uh, in the etymological sense, it's a point, uh, like an index finger showing you something, directing your attention, pushing you in a physical way. And with that kind of neuroscientific background, I think it makes sense for us to also consider a cognitive linguistic perspective. Now, these are different methodologically, the former being based on a kind of empirical data gathering uh, using things like brain imaging, but also behavioral studies, recording behavior. Um, and conceptual metaphor theory uh, starts with a more language-centered perspective. Ca uh, created by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson in the mid-'80s, uh, it's one of the more dominant perspectives on metaphor, linguistically, uh, but also is making a strong case uh, for a way to conceive of language writ large. 
uh, at least in the strongest uh, version of its claims. And the basic premise of conceptual metaphor theory is that metaphors map one domain of experience onto another. Uh, you may have noticed, actually, on the prior slide that I bolded a few key terms, uh, and those are to this effect, to point out that um, we conceive experience in terms of other experiences. So I emphasized here words like project, domains, map, and mapping, architecture. Uh, to even talk about concepts, we like to use uh, other domains of knowledge. So for example, cartography. In Lake Often Johnson's uh, explanation of this theory, uh, usually that motion goes from an abstract concept uh, and maps that in terms of a more concrete domain of concepts. Uh, so that's not always the case, but it's most likely the case. And the reason they give for that is to render less cognitive labor, uh, to be more efficient. So in theory, concrete concepts are easier. They require less cognitive work uh, to process. And so that means that difficult concepts like life or emotional concepts like love and fear can thus be rendered into something we can touch. Um, so the examples that they give are uh, things like life is a journey, love is a battlefield, or reality bites, um, all of which invite us to think of these difficult notions in terms of something we can very vividly sensorily recall or experience directly. Um, and each of these has a number of consequent entailments in pragmatic terms. So to say that life is a journey means that we can talk about how we're going nowhere, or we've reached a dead end. These are the sort of consequent metaphors that result, that allow us to reconceive uh, our experience. So I'd like to zoom in on one of those emotion concepts that Lakoff and Johnson go on about at length, which is uh, love. Um, and love is a part of many conceptual metaphors in their schema, but uh, I particularly am interested in this idea that love is war because it's so pervasive uh, in so much of our popular culture experience, for example, uh, as well as in our just typical conversation. Uh, all of the highlighted words behind me are from that domain of war, uh, a loose connection of concepts that are about battle and bloodshed and pursuit, uh, domination. In these domains, when mapped onto love, we have a kind of emotional production. So to think of love this way is fearful. It's a, it's a complicated process. And at the same time, it also, in theory, reduces the nebulous nature of love into something we can imagine, uh, even if it produces fear within us to do so. Uh, it, in theory, uh, is easier for us to handle. And I have some quibbles with the logic of conceptual metaphor theory, and it's not necessarily because I think the theory itself is not valid. Uh, if anything, I think that some of the stronger premises of conceptual metaphor theory are not leaned into enough. And I'll, I'll use this as an example to show what I mean. Uh, like Elf and Johnson apologize, in a manner of speaking, for the effectiveness of some of their conceptual metaphors. Um, by way of explanation, they say that metaphors don't map perfectly. It's not a one-to-one -one correlation. It's not an identity, for example, in mathematical terms. To say that love is a battlefield is not, uh, when you zoom in close enough, literally true. Uh, they would say, to uphold the familiar distinction. And one of the ways they explain this is to say, quote, the parts of the concept building that are used to structure the concept theory in the conceptual metaphor that buildings or theories are buildings, they have structures, foundations, etc., etc. The roof, 
The internal rooms, the staircases, and the hallways are parts of a building not used as parts of the concept theory. Thus, the metaphor of theories are buildings has a used part, the foundation in the outer shell, and an unused part, rooms, staircases, hallways, etc. Now, I'm certain that my emotional reaction to this assertion is uh, due to my own bias as a literary scholar. But I don't know about all of you. I have some marking due on Monday, and I have found myself in many theories that have confusing hallways um, and staircases, rather like um, Mr. Escher's work behind me. Um, The attempt to bound a metaphor is, I think, silly. Um, It's fun, uh, and I think it produces moments like this uh, that are laughable and worthwhile. Uh, I don't think, however, that they are determinate of the theory as a limitation. They serve a different premise, and it's not a premise that Lakoff and Johnson are um, specific about here. I think their premise is a distinction between the literal and the metaphorical, um, between the notion of uh, concepts as operating metaphorically and the literal physical stuff of the world. As much as they might themselves resist the distinction as I just phrased it, I believe that it's operant in their theory. Um, and I think that it is smuggled in uh, in that earlier uh, described convention of the abstract and the concrete. I think that this is a way to think about the literal metaphorical distinction uh, in different terms. It's uh, mapping it, if you will, onto construction materials, among other things. Um, so this is where I'd like to get into sort of what makes me tick, and I, it's what I would like your help with later in the question session, I think. In synthesizing these neuroscientific and cognitive linguistic approaches, I think one of the tools we have at our disposal is the history of words. I think that the usage of words over time is an incredible resource. Because I invited you to think of language as an emotional technology before, I'm going to invite you now to think of words as emotional artifacts, which is to say we can be archaeologists of these meanings, not to say that we uncover hidden truths, because that's exactly the sort of logic of etymology, uh, for example, that produces strange results at best. The idea is not to uncover hidden truths or secrets of knowledge. The idea is instead to look at tools and ask the question, how is it that they work? What is it that they accomplish? And to answer that question with data when we have it. For example, the distinction between abstraction and concretion uh, is something we can trace back very far in linguistic history and ask ourselves what it was that these tools were for. The programs sitting in front of you are full of abstracts, uh, things that were drawn out of larger things, generalizations. This is a manner of discretion we could compare to distillation. Um, This is what it means to abstract, to pull away, uh, in that, quote, literal sense, to drag. Concreting, on the other hand, or concretion, (laughs) is to grow together. Uh, Cresuring, that Latin verb, also means, however, to be born, or to birth, which brings us to the notion of content, which I think rather beautifully uh, unites these ideas. We like to think of concepts as abstractions, as things that we've pulled away from our sense experience. They are, um, for lack of a better term, takeaways. Uh, They're what we get, how we organize things, uh, and what we take with us. Uh, They are, however, also conceptions. Uh, To put it in Shakespeare's words, they can be monstrous births. Um, They're not always faithful, so to speak, to the input that produced them. Uh, And they do, 
form, reform, and deform that sensory input as it comes in, depending, of course, on your perspective. Thinking about these words this way is not absolutely philosophically determinate of meaning. I don't mean to throw these etymologies at you and to say, now you must believe. Um, that's not the point. It's a rhetorical position that is part of knowledge making, I think. To think of abstraction and concretion as opposites is counterproductive for the sake of thinking about the history of language, especially how language affects emotion. Based on that premise, I'd like to play with an example before we wrap up. Um, and that's the word metaphor itself. So I, I do my research predominantly in the early modern period, specifically in early modern England. Um, and metaphor is a, uh, a popular poetic phenomenon at that time in the literature written about poetry. Um, and it's classically sourced as is much uh, tropage at the time. And uh, people like George Putnam and Philip Sidney all agree that metaphor is a figure of transport. Uh, the term they use is transport, and that goes back to the Latin and Greek usages of the term, which literally meant to carry across. Uh, in biology, the term metaphoresis describes a phenomenon when one animal bears another on its back, uh, but not in a parasitic way. Um, it's about what you carry. That's what a metaphor does. In the strongest sense, I think conceptual metaphor theory invites us to think through thinking, and more broadly, to think through experience as a carrying. And if any of you just tightened up at that suggestion, maybe it's because you have post-structuralist predilections like mine. Because one of the whole ethos, one of the whole central ethoses, can we pluralize ethos? Ethoses of post-structuralism was that the notion of meaning as a thing to be carried in a container is ludicrous. It doesn't work. I think that we can consider this notion of carriage differently. There are many ways to carry, and I think it's quite productive, in fact, to think of experience as a carriage and a concept to grasp as a thing that carries. And when I say that that's a metaphor, I don't mean that it's merely a metaphor, that it's just a metaphor or only a metaphor, which is the way we usually talk about metaphors, uh, as something distant or lesser or separable from the literal. I literally mean it carries that it is a physical phenomenon in your sensory apparatus. To think about the history of the word is to think about an evolution of conceptual possibilities. Those are granular and particular uh, and specific and historically mediated, and they're not absolute or ahistorical or perhaps even transhistorical. Um, in my opinion, that does not mean that they are not useful to us as tools for better understanding emotion. That's why we're here, among other things. There was a question posed earlier in this conference, a productive question, which is how do we access emotion? Um, and I think that gives me the same tightness that that question of containers gives me about meaning. And that's why it's a difficult question. To access emotion makes it sound like you're going to catch it in a butterfly net, um, or perhaps to log in to a network and have it appear on a screen in front of you, uh, or to see a database and to put in the right formula and to discover it. Um, and as difficult as those conceptions of access are, I think we can, rather than avoiding them, lean into them. And to ask ourselves, when looking at these words as tools, to think of them as things that carry. Even if the literal notion of carriage makes us uncomfortable. So to 
close, um, my own discomforts methodologically with my own obsessions with etymology and the history of words are something I want to lean into, something to use uh, to refine the methods of admittedly laughable histories of this methodology. Isidore of Seville, whose wonderful etymologies uh, are still with us in so much scholarship, are subject to derision by linguists and people who would formalize etymology. And rather than be afraid of that distinction uh, and apologize for it, I recommend that we lean in. I think, uh, for lack of a better phrase, it feels right. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this podcast by the ARC Centre for the History of Emotions, please go to our website, www.historyofemotions.org.au.